1: Welcome to the Millennia Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valery, my pronouns are she, her, hers, and today you'll be listening to a very special two-part interview episode. We'll begin by speaking with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal about immigration, then we'll be hearing from Deb Holland, the Democratic nominee for Congress in New Mexico's first. Now let's jump right in with Congresswoman Jayapal. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm thrilled to be with you. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. So you were the very first member of Congress to join the Abolish ICE movement. What pushed you to do so?
2: Well, I've been an immigrant rights activist for 20 years now. I started working on immigration issues right after 9-11 when the Bush administration was secretly detaining and deporting immigrants from across the country. And we stood up. We actually sued the Bush administration and won and then started working on immigration issues. I ended up starting what is now the largest immigrant advocacy organization in Washington state. One of the largest in the country and these problems go back and they go back to the way in which ICE was formed right after 9-11 with lots and lots of money but no real accountability built in. Now, over the years we were able to push back, particularly when President Obama was in office, we were able to push back against some of the things that even the Obama administration tried to do. We were able to get him to roll some of those things back and not move forward on some really horrific policies. But the reality is we have continued to funnel money to ICE with no accountability. And so when Trump came in, he turned it into his own mass deportation force instead of trying to fight a horrible rogue agency culture that is cruel, inhumane, and by the way, wastes tens of billions of dollars of taxpayer money by contracting out to for-profit private prisons. So, I've been working on human rights abuses for a long time and I really really believe that there was immigration enforcement before ICE, there will be after ICE, but the way we do our enforcement has to be humane. It has to actually protect national security instead of taking away from national security and it shouldn't cost people so much. So, we can re- completely t- you know, re- restructure, reform The way we do immigration enforcement, we can get rid of ICE as an agency and we can actually work on incorporating those functions into other agencies to make it humane.
1: Congresswoman, I'm really glad you recognize that enforcement existed prior to Trump. I'd like to dig a bit more into that. You are from the West Coast, where immigration restrictionism originated in a sense with the Chinese Exclusion Act. In response to an influx of working-class Chinese immigrants, racist politicians passed the first piece of immigration restriction legislation in American history, which for the first time ever criminalized undocumented status and put detention and deportation under federal jurisdiction, which was later validated as constitutional by the Supreme Court with the Fong Yu Ting decision, despite there being no mention of either practice in the Constitution. Now, I'd like to read a quick quote from Justice Brewer's dissent in that case, quote, It involves first an arrest, a deprival of liberty, and second a removal from home, from family, from business, from property. It needs no citation, of authorities to support the proposition that deportation is punishment. Everyone knows that to be forcibly taken away from home and family and friends and business and property and sent across the ocean to a distant land is punishment and oftentimes the most severe and cruel. Now this, in 1893, is far more progressive than even most Democrats, with most Democrats in Congress considering deportation okay as long as someone is dehumanized enough. Why do you believe that these racist and inhumane practices are so widely accepted in the country even within our own party?
2: It's such an important question and such a difficult question and one I've grappled with for two decades you know, we have increasingly gone to criminalizing immigration and immigrants. We've gone to criminalizing practices that actually built our country, like welcoming people from other lands who were seeking refuge. And immigration, as you point out, with the Chinese Exclusion Act and so many other, the Japanese internment, so many things going all the way back. The you know, South Asians, I'm, I'm of South Asian descent, South Asians were not allowed to, to marry um, and become US citizens as well for a very long time. So we've had these exclusionary practices in immigration law for a long time. And it's always been a mixed bag, because on the one hand, we are very p- proud to claim ourselves as a nation of immigrants. And we are, with the exception of Native Americans, everybody who has come to this country or their ancestors came either on slave ships, unwillingly to build the country or seeking a better life, seeking refuge from persecution. So on one hand, that's a very proud part of our history. But on the other hand, there's always been a tension around how many more people do we allow in? And it's always resorted to fear of the other as a way to divide and pit us against each other because it is the political powers that be that would like to preserve power for themselves that are afraid to allow more people in and to lose control um, whether it's of a, quote, culture that they're trying to protect, or whether it's uh, an economic system, because immigrants have often been brought in as the bottom of an economic system. So, you know, we've been struggling with that for a long time. Um, Democratic and Republican presidents have been guilty of making things worse. Bill Clinton signed IRA IRA into law in the late 1980s, and that was really, in some sense, is the beginning of some of the criminalization of immigrants that is happening today. You know, I miss President Obama very, very much, and I'm a strong, proud Democrat. But we did have to fight against President Obama sort of giving in to this idea that Republicans have tried to push for a long time, which is that somehow Democrats want to open up our borders to everybody and allow everybody in. That It's just not true, but there's this question of national security that gets brought in and then used to try to pit people against each other. Trump has taken it to a whole different level because he has made it a specific political ploy and tactic to be racist, to criminalize immigrants, and to put everybody into the same bucket. So now, it doesn't matter if you're an asylum seeker, it doesn't matter if you're a legal permanent resident, it doesn't matter if you're a naturalized citizen, it doesn't matter if you're an undocumented immigrant who's been picking the fruits and vegetables that we eat every day, somehow all of these people are now in this bucket of people who are stealing from our country or criminalizing or drug smugglers, the Mexicans, the rapists, the drug dealers, you know, as many, Inflammatory terms as possible. Why? To get people to turn against immigrants, to have somebody to blame and scapegoat, which has been the history of, of immigration in this country, and ultimately to distract attention from the things that he is doing that affect every single American. Things like undermining healthcare, making pre-existing conditions no longer coverable by your insurance, transferring trillions of dollars from middle income families and poor families to the wealthiest through his tax cut. That's what he doesn't want you to pay attention to. Oh yes, and by the way, that he has been violating the constitution that he swore to uphold and protect with all of his conflicts of interest. That's what he wants you to focus on, but he can't do that unless he's got somebody to blame. And immigrants are a core piece of that. And Democrats, I think, are starting to understand with this family separation piece, how much has been allowed to happen and how unfair it is. So I really believe that people are starting to wake up to this and I hope that when we take back the House, if we take back the House and we really need to do that, then um, I hope that we will stand up and say, we need to reform this whole detention system. I have a bill, 3923, that would completely reform the detention system. Alternatives to detention, Um, no more private prisons for detention, and no more mandatory detention. You know, these are all things that we have to end.
1: So I was actually just about to bring up Ira Ira, because as you said, that really kicked off the mass deportation system we're seeing in full force now. And it speaks to why some activists are very reasonably worried that Some politicians are hijacking the Abolish ICE movement by making it into replacing ICE, maintaining the mass deportation state, but under a different agency again, erasing the inherently cruel nature of detention and deportation. How can we fight against that?
2: Well, I think that, um, you know, I I have really appreciated the movement that's brought a lot of attention to ICE, and Abolish ICE is a really good hashtag um, to bring attention to this issue, but I almost feel like We should not allow ourselves to get caught up in ice as the, you know, as the focal point in the sense that there are really three things we have to do. Number one, we have to pass humane immigration reform. We have got to stop playing politics and using undocumented immigrants and immigrants in general as a political football. And as long as we don't have humane immigration reform that allows people to stay here, to be with their families, they continue to be the most vulnerable in our in our community so we really have to do that second we have to make sure that the enforcement that we have because i do believe that a nation has the right to enforce its laws and to have uh you know sane humane immigration laws but some of the best immigration policies we've ever had were um, many decades ago when we had something called circular flow migration you kept track of who came in but actually people came in and went out and it recognized the flow of people in the same way that we seek to recognize flow of goods, that goods are moving across borders, people move across borders. We have tremendous issues in other countries that we need to deal with. And the enforcement of our immigration laws has to be humane and has to account for the fact that people are moving quickly across borders and we want them to. And then third, we need to really focus on foreign policy because when you look at what's happening in the world and when you look at who's coming across the border and why and you hear the horror stories in some cases uh, in countries where the United States foreign policy has actually caused people to flee. It has either propped up dictators um, you know it's been part of, uh, uh, of economic subsidies that have put uh, the economy in that country out of business these are all things that create the conditions for migration which is on the rise. And so the United States has to focus on important investments in foreign policy and diplomacy and in development and not in war, but really shoring up some of these some of these economies and making sure that we have human rights protections around the world. So I think those are all pieces that we're going to have to do. And they're not easy. They're not quick. Um, they will require us taking back a majority for the Democrats, for us to even think about these things, but then, even then, we need to make sure that all of my colleagues and, you know, people across the country really understand how we are using immigration to try to divide us, and we have to refuse to allow that to happen.
1: So my final question, something you're capturing here, and something I think was said quite eloquently by Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, is that we need to separate immigration from criminal justice. But how do we fundamentally deny the racist dog whistles you mentioned, open borders, rapists, criminals, and retake the narrative to make it humane and decriminalize migration?
2: Well, if I knew the answer to that, I would be a very, very rich woman. <laughs> but, but I think it, it involves just continuing to push back on the rhetoric and explain to people who is really to blame for some of the things that are happening. Um, and then I think we have to build it into policy. You know, why did we criminalize immigrants who their only crime has been illegal entry or re-entry. If you look at federal prosecutions today, almost 60 to 65 percent of federal prosecutions today are simply for those two so-called crimes, illegal entry and re-entry. And that's just crazy. That is resources that we are spending when we could pass immigration reform, have all of those people legalized and not have these issues anymore but yet we're spending time on that. If you look at detention centers, I'm starting to not call them detention centers anymore because they are jails. They are immigration jails. Detention makes you think that it's a nice quiet place where you're just there for a few days and maybe it's even a break. No, these are jails. And in fact, the immigration so-called detention system, immigration incarceration system is using county jails across the country as places that they contract with to hold people. So we have a lot of work to do, and it's both on the policy side, legislative side, but it's also in terms of educating our friends, our neighbors. And for too long, Americans across this country have sort of distanced themselves from this issue, and because they don't have as much information as we would like them to have or they should have, um, they then become prey to this divisive dog whistle rhetoric that's that's out there. So let's educate each other. Let's call people in. Let's build a bigger coalition. Let's elect more progressives who are ready to take these issues on. Let's elect more immigrants who are ready to take these issues on. Um, I'm currently only one of, of a dozen members of Congress who were born outside of the United States, a proud U.S. citizen, but an immigrant myself. And so... I think we need all of those perspectives, um, and I am absolutely ready and you know, have been doing for 20 years and will continue to do as much as I can to make sure that we live up to our values and that we uh, protect and preserve the uh, soul of our country, which I believe is what this immigration debate really is about.
1: I think you hit the nail right on the head there, Congresswoman. This is truly about the soul of our nation and I thank you for fighting for that soul and being a voice of leadership on immigration in Congress. Now we're going to take a quick break to tell you about our Patreon, then we'll get right back with an interview with Deb Holland, the Democratic nominee for Congress
0: in New Mexico's first. Stay tuned. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us.
2: And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown.
0: Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash millenpolitics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. Hey,
1: folks. Thanks for sticking with us. As I said earlier, we're now going to be speaking with Deb Holland, the Democratic congressional nominee in New Mexico's first, and the person set to become the first Native American congresswoman in United States history. Congrats on winning the primary, and thanks for coming on to the show. Thank you very much, Jordan. And I'll say my
3: pronouns are she, her, hers also.
1: Thank you for that. I always appreciate when guests introduce their pronouns too. Now Deb, you're expected to cruise to victory quite easily in November. And as I mentioned before, become our country's first indigenous Congresswoman. What does that mean to you and why has it taken so long to happen?
3: It has taken a long time, hasn't it? It's been, you know, close to 240 years uh, that Congress has been in session and never a native woman. So I am of course, very proud. I'd be very proud. Uh, as a member of Laguna Pueblo, as a single mom, as a you know a, a working class individual, to represent my uh, people here in District One in New Mexico, but also be a face and a voice that has never been seen or heard in Congress. I I think there's a lot of Native women across the country uh, who have never seen themselves in that body of our government, and so uh, yes, I'd be very very proud. Uh, I think for me. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'll go. I'm not saying I can represent my tribe or any tribe, but what I can do is bring my perspective, my history, my culture, my traditions to the table and uh, have opportunities to speak on those, you know, to speak on the issues that I uh, have experience with. And so I'm, I'm excited. And, uh, and take it as a, I mean, and this is a very serious election. I'm not going to take anything for granted. Uh, the polls showed that, that I'm only five points ahead of my opponent right now. So we're going to work extremely hard not taking anything for granted in this election.
1: So what are the issues you have experience with? What are the issues you're building your platform around?
3: Well, I'm a lifelong environmentalist, uh, for one thing, and so the climate change and the environment have been uh, a large issue for me as I move forward in my election. And so, New Mexico has almost 300 days of sun per year, and I believe we can make New Mexico a global leader in renewable energy. So, so I want to work toward 100% renewable energy. I know there's a lot of other. Democratic legislators who'd like to do the same, so I feel like I'll have some good allies when I get there. Uh, additionally, I know the importance of, of accessible healthcare. So I am, am, we're talking a lot about Medicare for All, uh, universal healthcare, wh- whatever method helps us uh, to ensure that every single American and every single New Mexican has healthcare, that's what I will work toward. And um you know there's several other issues. of course, education is always huge. Um, equality is always huge. women's reproductive rights in this era um, are always a- an issue that it seem- we're seemingly fighting for uh, because people are always trying to uh, take those rights away so um, so those are also important, but so is getting big corporate money out of politics and and returning the Uh, decisions to the people.
1: I'd like to dive a little deeper into your platform. You mentioned the importance of education. Something that stands out to me is that you don't talk about just tuition-free education. You talk about debt-free education. What is the difference and why does that matter?
3: Debt-free means that you don't leave college with a huge, you know, five-figure debt, as my daughter did. She just graduated from UNM. Last year, she was on. She was able to obtain the lottery scholarship, which was a. Uh, it came from our, you know, the New Mexico lottery system. Uh, it's. It was implemented by Democrats in the state legislature, and it gives uh, students fresh out of high school the opportunity to apply for this scholarship, and have uh, their tuition paid. So my daughter had that, but even in spite of of her obtaining the lottery scholarship uh... there were so many other expenses that she had fees and books and all of those things that she needed to pay for uh... not to mention housing and so she ended up uh... acquiring some debt while she was there so um, oddly uh, i graduated from college in nineteen ninety four and from law school in two thousand six and i'm still paying off my student loans as well so my daughter and i are both paying off our student loans I would like to see us ensure that there are enough grants and scholarships to go around for students where they don't have to pay um, interest on loans right when they get out of college. We should be able to uh, give community college tuition free and, and debt free to students across the country, and I believe that if everyone paid their fair share, uh, that we would be able to. I saw uh, I saw a tweet from uh, Congressman Ro Khanna the other day that said that they increased the military budget to 82 million dollars, 82 billion dollars, and uh, it was it cost 70 it would cost 70 billion to send every single student to community college in this country. I think sometimes our priorities are not what they should be for the vast majority of people. And I think the more education we can offer to students in that way, something that would be very good for our country.
1: Something else I found interesting about your policy platform is that you are diplomacy first. And I'm curious to get your thoughts about an image and a vision of the Democratic Party that is anti-imperialist, anti-colonial and diplomacy first. What does that mean?
3: Well, I think we need to—diplomacy is so important, and right now uh, President Trump has failed to staff our State Department properly. So uh, we used to have diplomats all over the world uh, speaking on behalf of our country, and and so many openings uh, have not been filled. Uh, we don't have the respect of the world like, like we used to. Uh, it's so important to talk things out first uh, before we use uh, aggression and violence. So uh, I stand by that. I, I don't think violence is the answer. I don't think uh, wars are the answer. And I would really like to see us ensure that we put our politics, I mean our diplomacy first. So. Um, So that's, I mean, that is something that that needs to happen and that's why it's so important that everybody go to the polls this this time around uh, and make sure that we are electing folks uh, to elected office that um, believe the same way I do.
1: With that, I'm curious to get your thoughts on what's going on with the Koreas right now. Though Democrats have largely opposed peace efforts They are, regardless of partisan affiliation, groundbreaking and supported by a solid majority of people in South Korea. Do you support Korean peace and the efforts that are going on right now?
3: Well, of course, I will always support peace over, over not right, over war. I'll always support peace over war. Uh, I am unsure of of the outcome, really, uh, from the meeting that President our president had with uh, the North Korean uh, leader. I, I don't know if that is, uh, you know, if that was truly beneficial to the United States. But uh, regardless of what happens, I think the United States has to uh, ensure that that whenever they meet with any world leaders, that the outcomes for our entire country are taken into consideration. Uh, it can't be just uh, the President wanting to go and boost his own personal image and you know, boost his you know his own personal um, wealth or or whatever it is. we We have to always, always take into consideration the entire country and um, and will this meeting benefit the entire country? Will this meeting benefit the world? Will this meeting um, you know cause us to have better relations? uh... with countries across the world uh... not just uh... is it good for me personally that that should be completely off off the table so uh... i am you know it's a lot to ask with this administration uh... and i i hope that uh... once uh... we can get back to some normalcy in our um, american government that um, we can repair uh... damage that has been done and that will be done.
1: I absolutely agree. I think it is very hard to trust the intentions of this administration, even if the efforts outside of it are good. Now, something I found quite disturbing is Democratic, and that's capital D, Democratic insistence on maintaining military bases in South Korea, because in my eyes that is really Democrats defending imperialism, defending interventionist foreign policy that tore Korea apart in the first place. It's Democrats attacking Donald Trump and his administration from the right. Do you support American demilitarization in Korea?
3: I, I, I'll be very honest with you. I haven't uh, researched that as much as perhaps I should, so I'm reluctant to just say one way or the other right now, but I'm happy you raised it, and I promise you that I will. Um, I will study that issue more. Uh, my, my dad was a 30-year career Marine. And combat veteran in Vietnam, his he took his orders from the president, whatever president was in office at the time during the times he served, and he, you know, he did his duty as he was instructed to do. Um, I know that it's important for us to uh, to maintain relationships across the world, and and I know we have bases uh, in many area in many countries of the world. Uh, I I guess what I would say is that um, if these bases are serving. Uh, serving the, our country uh, as much as they're serving the country that we're in, if there, if there is if there's an importance to us being there uh, then that's something to consider. Uh, so I absolutely will uh, look into that and and I appreciate you raising the issue.
1: Yeah of course and uh, I'll definitely follow up with you on that later. Now switching gears a little bit a policy of yours I find really interesting is a federal job guarantee. Could you tell us about that and what it entails?
3: Yes, yeah, so the federal job guarantee, it's, its you know, when I think back to the WPA back during World War II, when uh, we, the federal government, uh, President Roosevelt decided, yes, we need something to pull us out of this, you know, deep hole that we were in. Uh, you know, during the depression, people uh, didn't have anything, and so, he uh, worked to essentially guarantee jobs to people across the country and uh, i'm thinking back when i ran for lieutenant governor i went up to clayton new mexico which is a small town in northeastern new mexico and they have a museum there with this wonderful exhibit of wpa items uh, that even people as as far northeast in new mexico as clayton uh were beneficiaries of that program and uh there were so many facets to that program among those art uh you know ceramics and painting and things like that that people could actually get paid by the government to do Uh, people painted art and those art pieces would hang in various uh public buildings across the country because that was a way they could help people to rise out of poverty and and have a future for themselves and their families. And uh, I I would wholeheartedly support, there's so much work that needs to be done in this country. Uh, When you think about infrastructure needs, when you think about us transitioning to 100% renewable energy, how many people it would take to uh, not only manufacture the solar panels and, and wind turbines, but also to install um, install those uh, processes across the country uh, those would be thousands of jobs and I think uh, having a federal job guarantee for folks who have just are at their wits end, I know what it's like to not find a job. I went a whole entire year one time without finding a job it's very uh, it's very difficult uh to move forward when you are stuck in a place that that there's you feel like there's no return so um, I think it's a great idea. I, as I said earlier, if everyone could pay their fair share, uh, we would have enough money to do everything. And right now, with the, with the Republicans' tax plan that they recently passed, uh, we're $1.5 trillion in the hole because of the tax cuts they gave, gave, give to billionaires and rich corporations. And uh, there's no reason for that. I think we should reinvest in our people and in our country, not just in a few people at the top.
1: So something that I've noticed throughout this interview is you've talked about your own experiences and how they inform your policy and your worldview. And I think it really captures why it's so important to have working class people, to have people of color, people who have lived these issues, who know why they're so important. In Congress. Could you tell us about that dynamic, about why we need people with these real experiences?
3: Absolutely. You know, I have so, you know, so many experiences to, sh- to share. And so, you know, whenever something comes up, I, I, you know, sometimes I'm reminded about when that happened to me, or when I experienced that, or when I saw someone experience it. And I, you know, I tell my daughter, I try to make everything a lesson to her, right? As she was growing up, she's 24 years old now. But I remember clearly being at the grocery store one time and having to put food back because we didn't have enough money to pay for it. And uh, it was during the time, uh, it was during our our 2012 presidential election. And I asked her, I wonder if Ann Romney has ever had to do this. And she said, no, probably not right but we have we know what it's like um, to struggle and i think when you know what it's like to struggle you have compassion and empathy for other people and you're not just gonna uh fight for laws that take things away you're you know when you know when you know what it's like to live in a rural community with no public transportation and no jobs uh, you're not going to be so anxious to vote on a bill that requires you know that makes people uh, have a work requirement for obtaining SNAP benefits because you understand what that's like. Uh, the more people we have uh, who have experienced the struggle, uh, the better off we'd be in uh, determining what it is we need to be fighting for. Uh, likewise, I am a lifelong environmentalist, as I mentioned earlier. My my dad, uh, instead of sitting us down and teaching us about the environment, he would he would take us for you know long 3 hour walks on the beach and just experience uh you know the sand under your feet and the and the waves coming in uh it's it's uh it's in it's amazing and beautiful to uh just be in the environment that way and when i think about how that could be taken away from us because of our carelessness uh it makes me want to work really hard to fight against climate change i'm grateful that um My parents raised me the way they did. They were both public servants. As I mentioned, my dad was in the Marine Corps, my mom was a federal employee for 25 years. And so um, I learned from them, um, you know, their value at serving our community and I am ready and willing to do the same.
1: And we are ready to see you do so as a member of Congress. So again thank you deb for joining us on the podcast your candidacy is very exciting and we're very happy here at millennial politics to know that in 2019 we'll see you seated as the first native american congresswoman in our nation's history now to our listeners make sure to follow millennial politics on social media support us through our patreon check out our website millennialpolitics.co and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes for more great conversations with members of Congress like Congresswoman Jayapal and future members like Deb. Thanks for listening.